That was Amazi musician Aka Ali with Imerson Atlas Blues. Karen Avila, US born but now living in Spain, visited Morocco earlier this year, opting not to linger in the popular tourist haunts of Marrakesh, the country's fourth largest city. Instead, she took a grand taxi, which is a low-cost communal bus, the 70 kilometres south to the foothills of the Atlas Mountains and the Berber village of Imlil, 1,800 metres above sea level. There, Karen lived with an Amazi family to immerse herself in the culture. It was during the month of Ramadan, but she had lived in Saudi Arabia as a teenager, so she was not unprepared for the experience, as she explained to Graham Kemlo. So, Karen, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Graham. It's nice to be back. And uh, Morocco, what, what made you decide to go there? It was actually an impulsive decision. Uh, I can't be impulsive with, with the <laughs> travel decisions sometimes. It was very impulsive. I didn't really plan too far in advance and, you know, looked at the tickets, looked at uh, some places to go see and just decided within, I think, a, a few weeks of going that I would go visit. So it was, it was based on impulse mostly. I guess you can't be impulsive in your chosen profession of, um, of medical research. True. Yeah. Very true. It's much Pretty more rigid. Much follow the rules, yeah? Yes, I have to let it out somehow, My uh, the other side. <laughs> oh, well, that's great. So you flew into Marrakesh, did you? I did. I flew directly into Marrakesh from uh, Alicante here in Spain, direct flight, uh, right. very short flight, just a couple hours. Right. And, of course, Spain, um, well, almost shares a border with Africa, doesn't it? There's a strip of water there, but um, that doesn't seem to make a lot of difference. No. In fact, there's even... Um, a couple of small areas in Morocco that are Spanish run, which I didn't know uh, until I started asking about Morocco. But yes, so very close neighbor. You can take a ferry there. You can fly there. And there's actually a couple of Spanish towns uh, that are governed by Spain uh, in Morocco along the border. I assume you did have a bit of a look around Marrakesh. I interviewed people who've been there and they say it's just an incredible event that gets constructed, I believe, almost every night. The, the stalls go up and the food comes out and the smells and the smoke and the, you know, it's a it's an assault on every nostril that you own and maybe the eyes and the ears too. So you did Marrakesh and then what happened? You got a, you got a vehicle to a, a beautiful little village. Yes, that's right. So um did spend some time in Marrakesh and when I travel, I tend to take the spoke approach where I'll find a main city, like a hub to mm-hmm. spend most of my time in, but then I like to venture out to surrounding areas from that. So one of the spokes was a town called Imlil. And I found out by, uh, about Imlil through an acquaintance of mine who happens to spend a lot of time in Morocco every year. So she's very well connected there. And Imlil is a town that's very attractive to Trekkers specifically. It's located about between 60 and 70 kilometers or around just a little over 40 miles uh, south of Marrakesh. And you can catch what's called a grand taxi there. There's public buses that go there, but the grand taxi is really the easiest way to get there. It's basically a shared taxi. Um, So I decided to go to Imlil. Um, The other uh, attraction uh, for me, and I think in general for Imlil, it's not just appealing for for Trekkers, um, but there's uh, this is a, a village, a Berber village. And part of the fascination and the interest in, uh, for me was to go and really absorb and learn about the Berber culture in particular. So this is a great place to do that. Okay. So when you say the Berber culture, that this is a, uh, a term from ancient times, I imagine. It is. And actually, the um, I'm going to shift names um, just in the interest of cultural preference. But yeah. um, so Berber is the common name. And this 
Now, the Berbers are indigenous groups from North Africa, and they are an ancient culture. Uh, they go back, I think roughly they start uh, 10,000 years BC or earlier. So they've been around for quite a while. And I've read in some places that they're actually descendants from uh, people from the Stone Age. So ancient, ancient culture. Uh, and throughout North Africa, so various countries. Uh, and of course, there's a lot of different subgroups. The the Berber is a name that was given by invaders who have come through Africa. We know there's different groups of people that go through different parts of the world. Um, I think it was the Romans that uh, gave them that name, but Berber is actually derived from the Arab word for barbarian, which of course doesn't sound very nice. Oh, and so the Berbers, nice <laughs> it doesn't. And and I didn't know that. Uh, so they actually, the name uh, is Amazigh. Um, that's really the name that the community gave themselves. Uh, so Amazigh is really the culturally appropriate name for that Sounds group of people. Like, but Berber is still very common. Is that, a, is that amazing in English? It looks a bit like it when you, when you look at it. It does. When you see it written down, uh, it looks like a, and it's from what I understand. So there's no consensus on the where that word comes from. But I had read in one place that it was based on the Egyptian word for foreigner, which could very well be because I think the Egyptians were one of the first groups to document this community in North Africa about right. 2000 BC. Okay. There's an interesting decision of yours to to go and stay there. And I believe you were also there during Ramadan. Did that add a layer of complexity to things or um, were you quite prepared? for what you might have to go through. In other words, not eating and drinking in front of them. Uh, it was... It wasn't a layer of complexity. It was actually, for me, it was it was very exciting. And I didn't realize until after I made plans that I was going to be hitting Ramadan. So I already had my tickets and everything booked. Mm. And I decided just to Google when's Ramadan because it, it happens actually during different times of the year. So it moves based on the lunar calendar. Yeah. And it just so happened I was going to be there and actually arriving in Imlil the day of Ramadan. Um, so one of the things in the, in the Amazir community is that they – um, and I think in general, especially in, in Morocco and other places where there are where there is a high level of tourism, there's a lot of understanding and tolerance around visitors and their own customs and that they aren't necessarily going to be following Ramadan in terms of fasting. So although, of course, I become self-conscious about eating and drinking uh, in front of others who are, are practicing it's it's really not a, an issue or a concern for them. Uh, and when I actually arrived there, they served me tea, they served me a plate of walnuts. And of course, this is in the middle of the day where where they're not eating or drinking, but they were, you know, more than happy oh, to accommodate me. You. That's great. Yeah. Well, you, yeah. I mean, you did have this experience living in Saudi, uh, where you obviously would have encountered Ramadans or a number of them, actually. Yes, and in Saudi, um, and this this was quite a while ago, but it was it was such a different setup because in Saudi, uh, when I lived there, I didn't interact with the local communities as much because we were on our compound. It's literally called a compound, which is a, a fenced off area uh, where the expats reside. Really, the main encounter there was just restaurants being closed or not being able to get food in certain right. places at certain times. Um, but it was it was a very different experience. What was the accommodation? The family you talk about their house. It wasn't. It wasn't a canvas facility, which some Berbers still like to live in, don't they? So this was so this was a a, a house. They call it a dar. Uh, so dar Ahmadine is the name of this particular dar, and dar means as uh, the word for house in Arabic. Right. And it's a so the village is it's quite rustic, which was very nice. You know, very traditional. A lot of you know clay and stone and straw to build different structures, but they also have more modern structures where they use um, materials that you would see in, you know, buildings or regular houses downtown using concrete and, you know, iron 
structures and such. So, yeah. yeah. So this was, um, you know, tiled roofs, big terrace. This is a, you know, lovely house with three different levels, you know, very large tiled terrace. And, uh, so the family lived on the first floor and then they had a second floor where the, they were renting out a few different rooms and they had these beautiful common areas that were full of, you know, lush or plush cushions and, uh, tables and places to recline and, uh, a lot of sort of traditional cultural colors splashed around the rooms in the form of blankets and rugs, and it was quite nice and very comfortable. They can be very, very comfortable, although I think some of us don't seem to do very well sitting on our backsides to eat and like to be a little bit higher up, you know? You know the feeling? Yeah, so in, in some of this, um, in some of these places, there were definitely, there's like lower seating. Uh, some of the, I found that some of the seating, uh, like the seats themselves were a little bit lower. Some of the tables were lower. Yeah. Um, when I, I actually was invited to break Ramadan uh, with the family. So basically, that's their first meal of the day. And they were so kind and generous to invite me. So I actually got to go into their their living space. They're, okay. you know, walked by their kitchen, sat in their living room. And it's it was a sort of very low seated, uh, you know, close quarters uh, intimate quarters and uh it was you know it takes a little bit of an adjustment because i'm used to a bigger tail high chair what's the local um you've sent me a couple of photos one of which is you in the traditional dress which mm-hmm. looked terrific but what is the what's the local geographic situation you've got the atlas mountain sort of at the back of the village by the look of it um but yes. is it otherwise is it a little bit desert like how would you describe the the area geographically so Imbil itself is in the what are called the High Atlas Mountains, right. and the Atlas Mountains run throughout North Africa. They have the Middle Atlas, which is to the north, and then the High Atlas, and then the Anti uh, Anti Atlas Mountains, which is a little further to the south. Um, so this was all literally in the mountains. In fact, it's a beautiful winding drive to get up to the village of Imlil. Mm-hmm. And then everything is just the surrounding area is just forest, forested, basically. Um, but also some, you know, open, uh, areas with a lot of brush and rocks. So the desert is really in a different area of Morocco than <clears throat> this particular area in the Atlas Mountains. So there's, there's obviously rainfall in this area or runoff from the mountains. There is. In fact, they had experienced quite a, a traumatic flood in 1995, uh, which uh, very traumatic. It took them several years to recover from that. Uh, but yes, there's quite a bit of rainfall there. Uh, and it's very lush. There's a lot of orchards, and they, so they grow a lot of fruits, vegetables, nuts in that area. Right. And you said that you're about 1,800 metres above sea level. So is that starting to get cool? It it, uh, it does, which is actually quite nice, especially during the summer. It stays a little cooler there. <clears throat> when I was there, it was late March, and it was actually starting to warm up. It was cooler than Marrakesh for sure, right. um, but <clears throat> warm during the day, but at night, uh, just cool enough to wear a light jacket. Okay. So your little community you visited, that is an area that has seven small villages in it. Are they all, Do they all use the same location, name, Imlil? They they do. So what my host uh, referred to them as was communities. So it, the collective village is Imlil, and then there's these separate seven communities, but they actually each have a different distinct name. I don't know that you would necessarily see those names on the map uh, right. when looking it up, right. uh, but it's the communities have distinct names. It's not families who are in separate compounds. It's it's how they built their village, but I would say that um, from what my host is describing, there's definitely um, families are based, you know, sort of separately in those different communities. Like you'll have one family in, in one community, another family in another community. Right. I think that probably that's how maybe they initially were developed. And then, of course, there's the common village center that all the communities share. Well, if there's plenty of room, why live cheek by jail like they do in Melbourne and 
probably parts of Spain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so exactly. um, you say it's a trekking area. I know you like getting out, pounding the pavement one way or another. Uh, did you do a little bit of that yourself? I did. Um, so the main attraction there is Mount Tubkal, which is at over 13,000 feet or over 4,000 meters. This is the most popular and I think one of the biggest attractions there. I didn't do Tubkal this time because I would have liked to have had a couple more nights in the area uh, to be able to complete that. But I did some local tracks. There's a lot of different trails for all different fitness levels. Same thing with Tubkal. You could climb that even in the winter. You might need crampons and an ice axe. But really, most people of you know average fitness could do this climb, which is really nice because it, it makes it attractive for a lot of different people to go there. So we did a couple of different treks over the the few days I was there, uh, including uh, ones just surrounding the village, and then a couple that went over a local uh, saddle they call it this formation in one of the local hills. But just beautiful, endless trails uh, that go through the mountains. Now tell me about there's an interesting twist on the culture there. Well, uh, an interesting twist, I guess, compared to the male-dominant, you know, Western culture that we tend to live in. They have a different idea about the gender roles over there. Yes. So Abdo, who was my host, was very receptive to all sorts of questions about the Amazir culture, which, uh, of course, completely took advantage of his ear. And uh, I'd done a little bit of research before I went. And so I, you know, I approached him and I asked about, you know, the role of women, that I'd understood the role of women in the Amazir culture was that they had... They held, you know, high level positions in terms of passing down history, contributing to the economy through pottery and textiles and, and such. And so we talked a little bit about that. And he agreed that the, the response he had when I was asking about questions about the role of women and what my understanding was, he responded with a very simple sentence. He said, without women, there is no life. Oh, and I thought that was a fantastic way that is. Uh, that to is. just what say it all. What taught him that? <laughs> Yeah, it could be. Um, but yeah, so women hold very high positions there. There's also uh, one notable about women. And then I, I want to, you know, there's a couple of things to touch on about the culture that I find very interesting is that there was actually a female warrior queen, a queen that I'd read about. Uh, her name was Kahina. So she had actually led a couple of rebellions against the Arab invasion in the seventh century. Um, she wasn't successful, but she did, you know, she still held in high regard as being this a warrior queen uh, for the, the Amazir community. Oh, um, okay. So women hold very powerful positions and have for, for centuries there. Is it a culture that transmits its history It's uh, in, in the oral tradition? So mm -hmm. therefore women's role is very critical in, in passing on history? That's correct. So the women, um, they do historically, they have passed on their history through word as opposed to written. And so the women have played uh, and still play um, a prominent role in that. So would they teach the boys and the girls or does the role fall to the women all right down the family line? That's a good question. I don't know exactly if there is that split, um, but based on what I understand about the culture, I would think that they would probably pass it on to both genders. Wow. I, I didn't get any sense that there was any uh, divide in that respect. Okay. We like to like to handle all the angles, all the available angles. So, what about the food and the drink? How did you get on with the uh, the local food, the Moroccan food and uh, beverage? Yes. Yeah, so, I think the first thing that pops in my head when I think about Moroccan cuisine, and of course, this translates in the Amazigh community as well, is the spices and just the the complexity of flavors. Uh -huh. uh, there's, in terms of meat, like the 
usually they'll, they'll eat a lot of lamb, they eat beef and, and chicken is also common. Mint tea is, they have that morning, noon and night. Uh, it's offered as a snack. It's offered as a, uh, a welcome drink. Um, it's served with breakfast. And then of course you have it at dinner as well. So mint tea, uh, they also call it uh, Moroccan whiskey. Um, is is really the um, you know sort of the primary uh, drink, and then they make it with herbs as well as mint, so uh, that's quite nice. But the the flavors that come out with a variety of spices, very nice. The other thing, because I'm a big fan of carbohydrates, so I love pasta, I love bread, and they have uh, a really nice variety of breads that they serve quite a bit as well. So there's like kops, which is yeah. sort of like a traditional wheat dinner roll, but like a flat rounded dinner roll. Uh, there's misem, which is a doughy flatbread. They'll sometimes stuff with meat. And then something more like a crepe called baguette. Um, so there's different types of bread and you they'll serve those. Um, traditionally for breakfast, you get a variety of a couple different kinds of bread and of course with other meals during the day. Right. These are coming out of the household kitchen, I assume. What I did see of the kitchen, so I would help them bring some of the dishes in, was it, it looked it was modern. It was set up pretty modern, so I'm not sure how they... Now, how would I go over there being a coffee snob from Melbourne? How Would, would I get a coffee, or are they just going to insist I drink mint tea? <laughs> they would probably serve you coffee. I'm sure you could easily get coffee, um, but I would say the, the go-to there is tea, unless you specify otherwise. Interesting, because in Dubai, for example, um, they seem to be offering coffee left, right, and centre, and dates. Yes, yes. So they just do another s- version of the Arab culture, I suppose. Yeah. Great hospitality, um, uh, you know, very hospitable people. Very much, yes, absolutely. How long were you there? So I spent a total of two and a half weeks in Morocco in different areas, including probably most of that time spent in Marrakesh, but I was in Imlil for four days. Well, you've, you've absorbed an awful lot of information that got the names of the food they roll off your tongues. <laughs> You've obviously uh, taken all that down. Would you go back? I I would, and I plan to. There's very few places that I would say I'd go back to because there's so many places to visit. But this sure. is a place I would definitely go back to, partly because my ego wants to get up to the top of Mount Dubkal because I didn't do it the first time. Uh, so part of it's ego-driven, wanting to climb that mountain. Uh, the other part is just uh, being around the culture. The Amazigh culture is just one of such generosity and depth and warmth that it was very attractive, and I would love to go back. I made a couple of friends while I was there, so I, I'm looking forward to going back at okay. some point. Karen Avala was speaking with Graham Kemlo about village life in Morocco. For more information, head to thirdculturekaren.com. This is the Travel Writer Show on J Air 88 FM in Melbourne.